Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. Phillip Island lies in Western Port Bay, around a two-hour drive south of Melbourne, making it a popular destination for day-trippers from the city. It's connected to the town of San Remo on the mainland by a 640-metre-long concrete bridge. Farmland comprises 60% of the island, while visitors are drawn to the dramatic coastlines, renowned surf, and the abundance of fairy penguins and seals that gather on the shores. The northern shores of Phillip Island's coastline are sheltered by the bay, but the beaches on the southern side are dramatically different, bearing the brunt of the weather, huge swells and renowned surf. Some of the island's farming properties are bordered to the south by dramatic cliff faces. In my podcast, Case File, we have covered a lot of murder investigations and it's important to remember that behind every death is a ripple effect of shock that spreads through the community. With the murder of 23-year-old Beth Barnard, not only did the people of Phillip Island have to come to terms with this brutal crime, but also with the fact that a woman they knew and cared about was missing and presumed responsible. As soon as the police were notified that Beth's body had been found on the bedroom floor of her family's farmhouse on McPhee's Road, they were also alerted to the fact that Vivian Cameron and her land cruiser were missing. Vivian was the wife of Fergus Cameron, with whom Beth had been having an affair. A police alert was immediately put out for both Vivian and the missing vehicle. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. In 1993, not long after the Phillip Island book was released, I was writing my next book about police work and I did a shift with the Frankston police. 
Early in the night shift, a young guy reported his car stolen. He'd just bought the car and described it as a brown 1971 Holden HQ with an orange bonnet and a gold front end. It had two dints in the driver's side door and a considerable amount of rust on the body. The cops joked about why anyone would steal it and took the details and then set off for the night shift. Hours later, patrolling the streets of Frankston, we turned a corner and both officers said, there it is. They had both spotted the car reported stolen hours after I'd forgotten all about it. I had this sudden realisation that cops were really good at spotting cars. They're trained for it. So why then did the Wonthaggy detectives, the homicide crew and the entire forensic team from Melbourne drive right past the car that everyone was looking for? The missing Toyota Land Cruiser was parked on the Phillip Island side of the bridge in full view of the road. And we know that the local cops must have missed it too because when Pam Cameron came upon it after work, she thought it had already been found because earlier she'd seen a police car nearby. When Pam Cameron, the wife of Donald and sister-in-law of Fergus Cameron, had left for work on the morning of the 23rd of September 1986, here's what she knew. She had spoken to Robin Dixon about Vivian's mysterious 3am phone call. She knew that her husband Donald had met Robin to pick up Vivian and Fergus's five-year-old son. She knew Vivian and Fergus had had a fight the night before and that Fergus was injured. And she also knew that Vivian was nowhere to be found. Pam Cameron left for work and heard nothing more until lunchtime when a colleague told her about a murder in McPhee's Road Rill. She had rung her husband Donald, who confirmed that the victim was in fact Beth Barnard. Even though she had been at work through the drama of the morning, Pam Cameron was about to play her own small part. She found the missing Land Cruiser on the way home from work. Here's what Pam Cameron said in her statement. I then made arrangements for me to leave work earlier than normal after I finished my duties at the Wonthaggy swimming pool. I left San Remo at approximately 10 to 4 and headed for home. As I was crossing the bridge onto the island, I noticed what appeared to be our land cruiser, Angle Park, opposite the fast food outlet in New Haven. I made a U-turn and went back to the vehicle and found that it was our land cruiser, I saw that the driver's side window was open about two inches, it was unlocked and the keys were still in the ignition. I also noticed that there was a gold Oriton purse, a black handbag and a brown hand towel on the seat. On the dashboard, I noticed a full packet of cigarettes, also an open packet and a cigarette lighter. The cigarettes were a Claridge brand and were in a maroon and gold packet. The racetrack keys were also on the dash. I forgot to mention that earlier in the lunch hour, prior to me hearing the news from my colleague, I had driven to the pottery shop in New Haven, and on my return to San Remo, I had noticed a police car parked by the bus stop near the bridge. Because of seeing the police car earlier, and it being in close vicinity to where I found the Land Cruiser, 
I assumed because of what Donald had told me that Vivian had been located by police and that the Land Cruiser had been left unattended. So I took the keys out of the ignition and I took the gold purse and went back to work to ring Donald. Donald then told me to report the finding of the Land Cruiser to the San Remo police and to lock the Land Cruiser. I then went to report it to the police, but the station was unattended. I then returned to the Land Cruiser. I removed the racetrack keys, wound the driver's side window up and locked the driver's side door. I then went around to the passenger's door, which was unlocked. I opened this door and I immediately saw a black handle carving knife on the passenger's side floor, sitting on top of a pair of dry-as-a-bone trousers. The knife was clean and I recognised it as one of Fergus and Vivian's kitchen carving knives. We also used to have a set the same. I then opened the glove box to see if there was anything else valuable and I shut it again and then I locked the passenger's door. I then went to Ian's place and told him what I'd done and he then contacted the police. I took the gold purse, I opened it to see what was in it. I found loose change on the purse side and on the wallet side there were, I think, two plastic type cards, one of which was Viv's licence. There was no other money in the purse. So when had the Land Cruiser been left on Forest Avenue? On Saturday the 27th of September, four days after Beth's body had been discovered, Wayne Hunt, a bakery delivery driver, gave a statement to Gary Hunter. He told the detective he'd seen a vehicle at 5am parked on the nature strip of the reserve on the corner of Forest Avenue and the Phillip Island Road that led to the bridge. Wayne Hunt took little notice of the vehicle. He just remembered one was parked there that morning. In his statement, Wayne Hunt said, I cannot say what type of car it was or colour. All I can say is that there was a car parked there. I just glanced and kept going, but thought it was strange for it to be parked there at that time because normally there's nothing there. I thought it must have been someone using the toilet and I didn't think any more about it. If the mystery vehicle that Wayne Hunt had seen at 5am was the Cameron's Land Cruiser, could the police have driven past it all day? A missing woman? A keeper lookout for alert? If the Land Cruiser was photographed in situ, where it was found, the photos weren't included in the blue binder of photos in the inquest brief. There's a photo of a police officer pointing to a spot, presumably where the Land Cruiser was parked, Behind him lies the Phillip Island Road in clear view, which means that the land cruiser was in clear view of all the police coming onto the island from the mainland. And from the moment the land cruiser was located within half a kilometre of the bridge, the possibility had to be considered that Vivian may have left the vehicle there and jumped from the bridge. To get an idea just how far Vivian Cameron's car was parked away from the centre of the bridge, you can Google a satellite image of Forest Avenue, New Haven, find the reserve on the corner of Forest Avenue and the Phillip Island Road, and get a visual on just how far Vivian would have to walk in order to jump from the bridge. It's probably at least 
half a kilometre. While you're on your computer, you can also search YouTube for videos of teenagers jumping off the bridge for fun. The bridge is such an unlikely place to decide to jump from. It's just not high enough. Since kids did it as a summer lark, there's every likelihood that a jumper would leap off the bridge, then land in the water fully conscious, thinking, what now? Given that the Cameron's own farm backed onto cliffs with a treacherous drop into dangerous waters, that might seem like a better alternative to someone with jumping on their mind. The Nobbies lies 10 minutes in the opposite direction, at the westernmost tip of Phillip Island. The area is a collection of coastal rocky outcrops, which include the Blowhole and Seal Island. This area also has its own set of impressive, dangerous cliffs and drops. Of all of these areas, the bridge has always seemed the least likely choice to jump from. So the land cruiser was processed as well. There were no traces of Beth's blood in the car, even though if Vivian was still wearing her pink mohair jumper, she would conceivably have been soaked in blood. When it was found, the Land Cruiser had several square hay bales on the tray on the back of it. The hay bales were still on the back since there was no guardrail to keep them in place, but they did look a bit askew. The picture taken of the Land Cruiser at the police station showed one of the hay bales over the edge of the side of the tray. It's a wonder, with all the driving the night before, it hadn't fallen off. In 1910, a French detective named Edmund Lockhart formulated what became known as the exchange principle. The basis of his theory was that every contact leaves a trace. The criminal always leaves something behind at a crime scene, and always takes away traces of the scene with them. According to the exchange principle, the criminal may leave fingerprints, footprints, blood, sweat, saliva, semen or strands of hair or clothing fibres at the scene of a crime. Similarly, they take away potential evidence such as blood and hair from the victim, fibres from the victim's clothing and perhaps on his or her shoes soil or vegetation particular to the area where the crime was committed. Such contact traces, as they are known, form the basis for forensic detection work today. Detectives, crime scene officers and fingerprint experts look for evidence that connects suspects or the offender with the victim. While the forensic team gathered samples to find such contact traces, Lockhart's every contact leaves a trace theory was proving true emotionally as well as scientifically. When we listen to stories of murder, our sympathies go out to the victims and the families, but the ripple effect of a murder goes so much further. Every contact leaves a trace and every person on the island who knew Beth and Vivian was shocked. There was the horror that Beth was dead and the disbelief that Vivian, the young mother and friend from their community, could have been responsible. Just like the where were you when you found out JFK was shot or Princess Diana died, in discussions years later, people have never forgotten the moment they found out that Beth was dead and that Vivian was missing 
but wanted for questioning by police. As news trickled in, nurse Lisa Price could hardly believe that the quiet couple from the night before could have ended up embroiled in a murder. It wasn't until later that day that news started, people started talking about what was on the news or on the radio or something that there'd been a body found at it real. And slowly things sort of started to piece together that somehow, you know, Marnie and Marnie's family were involved in the incident. Beth's friend Wendy Orchard was staying at the Royal Melbourne show when she got the news. I found out because my brother rang me and in those days there was no mobile phones, of course, and um, I had to go down to the soup sheep superintendent's office. There was a, a thing comes over the announcing system for me to go to the sheep super's office and I went down and my brother had rung and he said, have you heard any news? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, I'm coming in to see you. And I said, why? What's happened? And he said, I'll, I'll be there. I'll come in and see you. He came in and into the showgrounds that evening, like almost straight away after he'd spoken to me and just said, um, Beth's been found murdered. And I just did not comprehend it. I had to wait until the show was over. We weren't allowed to leave until a certain day. In those days, you got sort of locked in for, <laughs> for the duration of the show. Um, yeah, you were there the whole time, um, start to finish. I just remember, you know, coming home and, yeah, it was sort of like, well. Over at the Penguin Parade, the workers found out information in dribs and drabs. Beth's co-worker, Graham Bergen, describes the reaction. Shock. And everyone went into shock. When I went into work, it's it's like the walls are talking thing again. No-one gets all the staff together and says, listen, we've lost one of our team, and then, you know, have some time together to just talk it through. Because it it is really... You end up sometimes getting not post-traumatic stress disorder. Those things can echo for some time afterwards, depending on how you've dealt with it or how close you were to the person or the people involved in it. And at the time, little bits of information were coming out as the days went on. When we were researching the book in the early 1990s, one of Vivian's friends told us that she heard the news on the radio as she was driving to the school to give her son his lunch. She said, I burst into tears and had to drive straight home again. Beth's friend Denise, the one who Beth and Marie made the tapes for in London, received a phone call from Marie who broke the news. Denise left work straight away and hurried back to her flat to make arrangements to fly back to Australia. When she got to her flat, she found a letter waiting for her. It was from Beth. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Through her tears, Denise tore open the letter and read it over and over again. Beth wrote that she was confused about her relationship with Fergus and wanted to get away from Phillip Island for a while. Beth wanted to join Denise in London for a holiday. Despite her hasty travel plans, Denise would arrive in Melbourne too late for her best friend's funeral. Having seen Vivian the day before through the window of the community house as she rode the bus to the show, Isabel Adicote tried to ring Vivian. Well, the next day I tried ringing her to change my days and I couldn't get her. And I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear, what am I going to do? So I didn't worry terribly much about that. And then the next day I went down to our little um, shop down at Smith's Beach and the man in charge there said, have you heard about the murders? And I said, what murders? And uh, he said, oh, there's been a murder and the girl from the Penguin Parade and I never thought anything more about it. And then it was the next day, I still hadn't managed to get in touch with Vivian and I was rung to be told the terrible news that it was believed that Vivian had killed this girl and also had jumped off the bridge at San Remo. Well, I could not believe this. A friend of the Cameron family, Anne Davey, talks about the disbelief in the whole community in the aftermath of the murder. Immediate reaction of the whole event of Beth being murdered and um, Vivian being implicated, it was astounding. I mean, it was hard to believe. It took a while to get my head around it and for many, many people on the island. I didn't know Vivian that well, but as I say, she was from the farming community. I knew she was well respected, that she worked at the community centre as a coordinator and was very good at that, and was a loving mother of two small boys. Uh, So it was an absolute shock to feel that this person could be capable of, of what was happening and the fact that that she just disappeared and that was so unsatisfactory that we never really knew what happened to Vivian. Nurse Lisa Price shared similar sentiments. Everybody that knew Vivian was just incredulous that she she could be capable of doing that and and as little bits of information came out such as you know, that supposedly Vivian had said to Fergus on the night before, I'm a bad mother, I'm leaving and I'm leaving the children to you. Everybody that knew Vivian said there's just no way that she would do that. Um, that she was a, a very, very much a hands-on mother and, and, uh, and you know, very, very devoted to the children, very passionate about being a mother and, and providing the home life to the children, that it was just completely averse to what her personality 
would do was just a complete shock, really. I don't know that it, I could really put, put it all together at all. It just, the whole thing just seemed bizarre. While for many it was beyond belief that Vivian Cameron could have murdered Beth, some, right from the beginning, refused to believe that she had done it. After getting over the shock of her good friend murdered in her street, Wendy Orchard just couldn't imagine it could be Vivian. I just didn't believe that Vivian could have done it. And my my own feelings at the time were that that wasn't the sort of thing she would do. Like, that was just didn't fit with her character at all. As the woman I knew her as, I just sort of, no, I can't believe that a woman could do that, but, but that Vivian could have done it. She would have to have been drunk or drugged or something, you know, you just go, you just don't, yeah, it's just, just didn't work for me. And perhaps Wendy has captured the beginning of the doubt that would remain to this day. If people who knew her couldn't believe she could murder Beth, then they could also refuse to accept it was true. But outside of family and friends, the people in the community most disturbed by the news were Glenda Frost, who took the phone call from Vivian Cameron at 10am on the Tuesday morning, and her friend Pam, who was visiting from Melbourne and was there when Glenda took the call. An innocuous phone call about where she could buy a patchwork house pattern for Isabel Atticote's retirement gift. A phone call Vivian had made six and a half hours after allegedly committing the brutal murder of Beth Barnard and five hours after Vivian and Fergus's land cruiser was allegedly spotted near the Phillip Island Bridge. By the time the murder was covered on the news that night, Pam was back home from her trip to Phillip Island It is interesting that she captures, in our interview so long ago, the reluctance that Glenda had to come forward. Glenda was really upset to find herself caught up in the middle of a murder investigation. That was at 10 o'clock in the morning on the the Tuesday. And with that, um, we still didn't know anything about what had gone on. And uh, I came back to Melbourne that day and it may have been that evening, I think. I was watching the television and the news came on and that was where they had said that what had happened, that Beth had been murdered and that Vivian's car had been found down by the water's edge early that morning. I think it was about five o'clock, that's right. Um, And her keys and purse, I think it was, was in the car and that they had presumed that... uh, she had jumped off the bridge. And then uh, when I saw that, I immediately thought about the telephone call that Glenda had had at 10 o'clock in the morning. And the impression that I got as a result of that was that um, Vivian didn't give any indication whatsoever that she knew anything or acted in any way that she knew anything about what had gone on. I didn't speak to her on the phone, but I got the impression that uh, she was completely either innocent of what had happened or she'd had a kind of a a mental cut-off where she thought, right, life's just going to go on 
you know, that's what I felt. But anyway, then I started thinking about the whole thing and I thought, well, that information that we had, that Vivian had rung at 10, we should really tell the police about it. And I rang Glenda and told her about it and she said, well, I, I feel upset about the whole thing. Would you ring? And I went... I, I was work nursing at the time and I rang the matron at the hospital where I was working and I didn't tell her about the whole thing, but I said, would she permit me to take a day off because Glenda was really, at this stage, quite upset about what had happened. And I took off and went back down to the island and um, we talked a little bit more about it together to make our decision as to whether we would give the information. But I felt that it was necessary because it was a misleading statement that they had given that they felt that Vivian at that stage was dead when she had in fact rung Glenda quite a number of hours later and was acting as if nothing had happened. Archival footage of the TV news coverage shows cameras filming the police cars and the detectives out the front of the house in McPhee's Road on the day Beth's body was found. If Pam is correct and it was the Tuesday night that she saw it on the television, then it was only eight hours later that Pam realised the importance of the phone call. Over the years, the phone call has been dismissed as maybe happening on another day, but Pam and Glenda have never had any doubt of the timing of it. You know, um, Vicky, I definitely distinctly remember her having to go off the phone and a background noise, which I just thought I was a kid. Pam remembers me saying that I would have turned around to uh, Pam and said something about, or um, I won't be long on the phone or something. Because Viv wasn't a chatter. She she always sort of liked to chat, but you were the one that had to. You know, she'd uh, stand around sometimes very quiet, but not an embarrassing quiet. She liked to chat if you, but you had to sort of help it flow. Mm. Going back to that bit on the phone um, where she said, oh, just a minute, there was noise there. That's not in the It was somebody else. It was. That did happen, and I feel sure I told them in court. I put the question to Glenda all those years ago that if she heard a voice or voices in the background, then someone has to know where Vivian was on that morning. There oh, was, yeah. There was somebody else. She was off the phone for a little said, minute. Mm. And I said to Glenda too that it wouldn't have she been the children that. because they were of school age. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. I said to Viv, oh, are the kids playing? Yes, you said and that. And she said, oh, it's all right. We just went on. It wasn't a big deal, but there was, there was a, somebody a, there. a little break in our conversation while she said just a minute. So mm. but I assumed it was the kids, mm. but like later. You tell me there was the friends, so it wasn't the children. Yes, there was somebody else. Another piece of evidence supported Glenda's story of the phone call. Isabel Adicote, who shared the coordinating with Vivian at the community house, went into work within days of hearing of Vivian's reported involvement in the murder of Beth Barnard. I went into the community house and uh, there is a diary that we uh, kept at the house that Vivian and I entered things in that we wanted to pass on to anyone. And I found that she'd written something in on the Tuesday morning and that concerned me because what had been told to me was that she'd already jumped off the bridge by then 
And how could she have written that then? My daughter was in the police force at that stage. So I rang her up and I said, I don't know what to do. There's something a bit funny about the diaries. So she said, ring the police, Mum. So I rang. And uh, I, they said, oh, look, we will probably come and interview you. Back at the crime scene, there didn't look to be any attempt to wipe down surfaces to erase fingerprints. Experts examined the house and dusted surfaces to see if they could lift usable prints. The bloodied knife that lay next to Beth's body yielded nothing. None were found in the bathroom either. If Vivian was the murderer, she hadn't left any prints behind to prove it. After interviewing Donald Cameron at the Cowes Police Station, Detective Ellen McFadden shared what he knew with homicide detectives Rory O'Connor and Gary Hunter. McFadden told them about how, around 3am, Vivian had rung a friend to pick up the kids. Fresh from canvassing neighbours, O'Connor and Hunter shared what they knew about the neighbour hearing a vehicle at 3.20am. Pieces of the puzzle were starting to come together. The next step was to talk to Robin Dixon as soon as possible. She was the last person the police knew who had spoken to Vivian. McFadden drove to the primary school where she worked and explained the urgency of his business. Robin Dixon was summoned from afternoon classes. She was shocked to hear of the murder of Beth Barnard. She didn't know Beth well, but had met her on the Cameron farm. Robin Dixon told McFadden about the phone call at 3am and how her husband had answered and how they'd driven to the Cameron house. She said she had noticed the Holden in its usual spot and Vivian's handbag by the door and how she concluded that they must have left in a hurry and must have gone by ambulance or maybe with a relative. Robin explained how she had tried to ring Donald and Pam Cameron from 7.30 that morning and finally got through to them at 7.45. It seems likely the Dixons never imagined that Vivian and Fergus would have taken the land cruiser they used around the farm to the hospital. In any event, in their middle-of-the-night collection of the two young Cameron children, they didn't check the shed to see if it was there. After speaking to Robin Dixon and after already having spoken to Donald Cameron, Alan McFadden returned to the Cowes police station, figuring that the next person he needed to speak to was Pam Cameron, but she beat him to it. After finding the Land Cruiser on Forest Avenue, Pam Cameron drove to the home of her brother-in-law, Ian Cairns. She explained her find to Ian, who called the Cowes Police Station and spoke to McFadden. Once the Land Cruiser was found in the vicinity of the Phillip Island Bridge, with no sign of the missing Vivian Cameron, the possibility had to be considered that Vivian could have jumped off the bridge. A slim possibility... In fact, a possibility that no one I've ever spoken to thinks likely. Even homicide detective Rory O'Connor can't say for certain. I honestly don't know because we've always thought, well, (laughs) did she jump or did she catch a bus somewhere? Which we checked anywhere. We checked taxis, buses and everyone leaving the island called for that and nobody could come forward. So at that particular stage, and it might have been a family member took a ride off the island, who knows? I mean, and I'm not accusing the family of doing anything, but 
you know, you don't, you just don't know because there's nobody there to say exactly what happened. Only the evidence that we found at the time. That's why she's never been a convicted murder, but she, there is a warrant out for her arrest and prosecution for murder. Detective Ellen McFadden would later say in a television interview that he searched the length of the bridge on both sides and couldn't find any break in the salt crust on the railings to indicate that someone had climbed over. What did he think of the Land Cruiser's proximity to the bridge? Yes, well, the fact the car was near the bridge, maybe whether you'd notice the vehicle was also near a bus stop. And what of the Land Cruiser itself? Like Pam Cameron said, it contained Vivian's handbag, purse, cigarettes, a box of matches and a face washer with traces of blood on it. Did it look like it had been driven by someone soaked in blood? None of the detectives who'd seen the crime scene had any doubt that the offender would have been covered. And right from the start, the fact that Robin Dixon saw Vivian's handbag on a table near the door when she came to collect the Cameron children in the middle of the night, and then the handbag turned up in the Land Cruiser, left a lot more questions. Had Vivian driven all the way to Beth's place on the other side of the island, killed her, then driven all the way home to get her handbag, only to drive all the way back to the bridge? From Beth's house in McPhee's Road Rill, it's a 10-minute drive to the Phillip Island Bridge. From Beth's place back to the Cameron house is around a 12-minute drive in the opposite direction. If suicide was her aim and the car had been there since 5am, then it suggests that Vivian drove 12 minutes back to her house, retrieved her bag, then drove 15 minutes back to the bridge in the direction she'd just come from. So did Vivian Cameron do this complex series of trips covered in the blood of her victim and get none in the Land Cruiser or on the steering wheel or at her house. Homicide detective Rory O'Connor talked about this when I interviewed him originally for the book back in the early 1990s. She would have had so much more blood on her. Blow for me if she had been. Just with the blood that's flying around that room. Now, unless she walked in there covered with a pair of overalls on and a plastic bag over her head, she'd have to have that blood from the head to foot her body from that type of attack. And if Vivian Cameron had driven back to her house to get her handbag, was there any transference of evidence? Well, there might have been, we don't know for sure, but there was one item collected from the Cameron house that did have Beth's blood type on it, item 23. It was a piece of paper on the bed in the Cameron's spare room where Fergus said he sat after Vivian attacked him with a wine glass. And on that piece of paper was a big smear of blood. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. Where her room was, the um, car would have driven right past her bedroom window. If you have a colossal injury, unless for some reason you've got like the clothing up around it that's catching the blood or something like that, or it's shielded by the offender who's collecting the blood, while there's a good blood pressure, would expect to go a long way um, and spray quite a bit. Detective Ellen McFadden had one final question. 
Was Beth Barnard alive when the A was carved into her chest? The doctor shook his head. I can't say for certain whether she was alive then, but I think not. 